All right, we're halfway through a sermon series where we're digging into God's word to find out what does the Bible say about work. And we've recognized already that outside of the scriptures themselves, the Christianity, the Christian camp has not done a great job at writing and helping Christians think about work. So because of that, I would like to highlight a few of the good books that are out there because I'd like for some of you to keep thinking and reading in addition to what we're doing in this series. Let me highlight three that you can find in our resource center. The first is Tim Keller's Every Good Endeavor, connecting your work to God's work. If you've never read anything by Tim Keller, he's one of my favorite authors, very insightful, very helpful. This is excellent. The Gospel at Work by Greg Gilbert, very good book, How Working for King Jesus Gives Purpose and Meaning to Our Jobs. And then this is a friend of mine, he's also an evangelical free church pastor, Work Matters, Connecting Sunday Worship to Monday Work. So consider grabbing a copy of one of those to do some additional thinking and reading and wrestling on this issue. So, what have we been doing so far in this series? Well, we're wrestling with how we as Christians should think about the 50 hours or more a week that we invest in the workplace. And that plays out to about 100,000 hours in a typical lifetime. So does God care about those hours spent in the workplace? And you might be doing something that seems very unspiritual. Does he care? Well, I hope you've been paying attention enough to know the answer is, oh, yes, he does. Because God is a worker. He created us in his image to do work. And this is one of the things that is is indicative of us being imago Dei, in the image of God, that we're workers We're a reflection of God being a worker and a creator and an organizer. This is one of the things that shows us to be created with dignity in the image of God. But now here's what we bump up against. Even though work is good, is work good? Oh, yeah. And even though it's a reflection of God, work is hard. In fact, what I want to talk about in the next two weeks, today and next Sunday, is the fact that it is likely that in the context of the workplace is where your faith as a Christian, your Christianity, will be tested and stretched the most. It's in the workplace that it's likely to be tested and stretched the most. And so here's what I want to do in the next two weeks. Today... I want to point out what some of the biggest dangers are as you head into the workplace. I want you to go there, but I want you to be alert. Go alert to what the biggest dangers are. And then next week, I want to talk about some of the biggest decisions you can make that will help you as you head into the workplace to glorify God there and finish well. So today we'll dig into some of the dangers. Next week we'll look at some of the biggest decisions. And to get our heads around this, I want to focus our attention on a passage of scripture that I think highlights a number of the dangers in our culture and the workplace. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And so I want you to stand as I read God's word. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, be followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But 
fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, proving what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, awake you who sleep. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The word of the Lord. And all God's people said, you may be seated. So today... What are some of the biggest dangers that you're going to face out in the workplace? Here's the first. Number one, your work pace can leave no space for your own humanity and your desperate need for unhurried time with God. And that is a recipe for spiritual disaster. Listen to me. Work is good. Work is a reflection of God. God made you to be a worker, but he never designed you to work day and night, day and night, day and night, relentlessly, day and night. 24-7 was never his intention of how you would reflect that you're a worker like he is. But I know it's so easy to get sucked into this because corporations and businesses today, they're all cutting costs and trying to increase profits. And one of the best ways to do that is by reducing the number of people that are trying to get the job done. Right? Since 2008, that has been huge. It's like companies that used to have seven people doing a certain thing are trying to do it with three. And that just increases the load and the stress on those that do have those jobs. And I'm suspecting that most of you in a room this size are not the ones that set company policy and could say, hey, let's be that company that cares about the souls of people and their families. And you probably don't set policy in the place where you work. But here's what I want you to understand. You do need to control what you can control. Like when you go to bed, when you get up, and when you meet with God. And notice I used when even on that last one, assuming that you do meet with God. If you don't, different sermon for you. I'm assuming you are trying to do this. But what I want you to understand that if you're just saying to yourself, I've got to have time with the Lord, I've got to have time with the Lord, that's not where to start. When you go to bed affects when you get up, 
which for me affects whether or not I can have time with the Lord. Now, you may say I'm that night person. You just have a sweet time with the Lord. If you are, you're the exception. When we get home at night, we're exhausted. We're distracted. There's things about the home that need to be done. I don't find that typically that's a great time to spend time with the Lord. If you do, great. You're the exception. And as we look at the scriptures, we see morning, 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 morning. It's not a sin to try to do it some other time. But you see Jesus in the morning pulling away and getting alone with the Father after a hectic, busy, busy day. I want you to understand that these three things, like a threefold cord, are woven together and all impact each other. When you go to bed, when you get up, and when you meet with God. Huge impact that starts in your own heart and home and spills out into the workplace. Because listen... There was a football coach that said it once, and it's so true. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. I mean, when you're exhausted, aren't you just more weepy and fearful, and you don't respond well to difficulties? I can't control the difficulties that might happen, but I can control how well I can respond to it. And sometimes fatigue is what makes you say, I can't deal with this. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. But here's what I want you to understand as a Christian. There's something worse than just weepy. Fatigue makes you much more vulnerable to stepping into all kinds of sinful temptations in the workplace. You're not as vigilant. You're not as guarded. You're not as careful. You're not as hopeful. You're not as filled with the Spirit. And you're going into a dark, sinful, broken place. He's called us there. But he never said you could do this well in your own strength. And oh, by the way... The strength that you do have is just ragged edge exhaustion. Don't expect to do well like that. You'll be vulnerable. And it may not sound very spiritual when I talk about putting yourself in bed. But oh my goodness, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is go to bed. Go to bed. Go to bed. Go to bed. Oh my goodness. It's a game changer. This is my own personal testimony. I'm not just hearing. I've heard that's helpful. This is me in 2011, and and I'm a fairly driven type A guy with pretty high capacity and bandwidth. And from the time I've been working, which is like 15 or 16, I've been going hard and trying to figure out how many things you can do at once and how you can maximize it. And in 2011, I just felt like crying all the time, and everything just upset me. I was falling asleep in the chair outside of the room in Dillard's where she's trying on dresses. I fell asleep on the treadmill at LA Fitness. I fell asleep on the commode. And I'm like, okay, there's something wrong with me. I have a disease. There is something serious wrong with me. I'm going from doctor to doctor. I paid lots of money to have probes put all over my face and to sleep to tell me that there's nothing wrong with your sleep. You don't have whatever that thing is, sleep apnea. I thought, surely that's what it is. I would wake up feeling just as exhausted as I did before I went to bed. And I thought, there's got to be something wrong with me. And finally, my doctor said, Brad, you are exhausted. Never thought about that. <laughs> oh, I can't go like I used to go. There's a new normal. Oh, really? Get this, I kid you not, I started putting myself in bed at 9 or 9.30 instead of 11. I was never 1 in the morning, 2 in the morning, but I'm thinking, it's just 11. All kinds of stuff happens between 9 and 11. I know it, especially if young adult children, that's when they talk, that's when they show up. Lots happens. I miss it all now. I miss it all. Let me know if anything important happened. 
I mean, even my wife, I start to get up out of my chair. It's like 9, 10. She's like, oh, honey, no, 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 no. Surely you're not going to bed. Yes, surely he is. Verily he is. Because it feels so good. I added 90 minutes of sleep to my life. And I kid you not, the pressures in my family did not change. I didn't get new family members that were less sinful. I didn't get less stress in my work. It was still you. You hadn't changed at all. The difficulties, the complexities, the complaints, the emails, the love. It was all still the same. My home was the same. My work was the same. My ability to respond to it well was significantly better. Just more sleep. Just more sleep. I remember my dad going to bed at around nine and thinking, what is wrong with him? That is so weird. It's not weird, it's wonderful. (laughs) It feels so good to go to bed like that. And some of you don't realize now, you know, you may just be up later than you should because doing stupid stuff. Either way, you still need to think your humanity, you need to put yourself in bed. You could read another blog, you could watch another show, you could you could watch another Snapchat, you could watch another stupid video, you could it is amazing how fast an hour will go by. And have you done anything important? No, you could have gone to bed, which is going to impact your next day at work and perhaps your time with the Lord. This is critical. God made us as human beings. And listen, if you're burning the candle at both ends, this probably isn't going to get turned around overnight. But you need to think, I can start making changes about when I go to bed and when I get up. That's on me. I can start making some changes about that. And here's what I started to realize about putting myself in bed. Here's where I'm going to bump it up against something very important and theological, lest you think, whatever. Putting myself in bed earlier makes a statement about humility. You see, how in the world is humility related to sleep? Now, now stay with me. How significant is pride? Big sin, little sin. Huge. Surface, you know, peripheral sin or root sin that we all struggle with. Root sin. Oh my goodness, I started to realize sleep is related to a statement about humility. And here's what I mean. When I put myself in bed, even when I think there's so much more that I've got to do. Or if you're just that person that stays up to do fun things. I deserve to surf some more, watch another show, just one more episode. Especially now that television, I don't watch TV shows because I hate the commercials. I got it on Netflix or Amazon. I bought the whole season of Blacklist, season five. I can sit there and as soon as it ends, of course, you're like, oh, I got to know what's happening. Another episode. I'll stop after that one. No, I can't. What's going to happen to Raymond? I don't know. And so before I knew it, I've I've watched three episodes and I'm like, oh, dear me, it's 1130. We live in a day, whether it's you thinking, I got one more thing I have to do related to work and one more email to check and think through that meeting one more time. Or if you're in the home, I'm going to do a little more lesson planning for the home school. You just think there's more I've got to do or I deserve to just hang out a little longer. Whatever it is, when I push against that and put myself in bed, I make a statement. A humble statement. I'm saying, God, I am humid. I am limited. I am frail. And you are not. I make a theological statement about what I say. I believe that there is a God and I am not. And putting myself in bed is a statement. 
I'm going to trust you and I'm going to leave the rest to you undone of what I think I still should work on. It would make tomorrow better if I could go ahead and, and I'm going to trust. It really boils down to trusting God. And I've got a phrase that I'll say, living by faith in future grace. And I got it from Piper. Living by faith. In future, I'm going to trust you by faith that you'll give me the grace to do what I need to do tomorrow without staying up a little later to prepare for it. Just, it's humility. You are God and I'm not. I'm human. I'm frail. I'm limited. I need sleep. In his excellent article titled, Three Reasons to Get Some Sleep. Excellent article. Google it. Find it. Three Reasons to Get Some Sleep by Jonathan Parnell. He makes a profound statement when he says, quote, sleep is the midwife of humility. Now stay with me. When you hear the word midwife, we usually think childbirth. And that's usually where that word is used most. You've got a midwife who helps you to birth a child successfully. But the word midwife simply means someone who comes alongside someone else to assist them in reaching certain results. Typically a midwife wants you to have the result of a healthy, safe baby and you're healthy. But listen to me. Sleep is the midwife of humility. Sleep can come alongside and lead you towards greater humility. A, that you're more rested, and B, you're trusting God saying, I know you'll be up all night, and I don't need to be, and so I trust you. You want to cultivate greater humility? Sleep will help you get there. Parnell goes on to say, quote, next to prayer, sleep may be the most central practice that lines up with the truth of who we are. Sleep is that necessary moment that comes every single day when our bodies go slow and our minds start dragging. They witness to our fragility and eventually we will surrender. Our problem, as the studies suggest, is that we don't surrender soon enough. Often, we push back. Oh, I hear people say, oh, I only need four hours of sleep. I only need five hours of sleep. I... Liar. Go ahead and say, I live on only four hours of sleep. And as far as I'm concerned, that works. That will catch up and bite you in the buttocks of your humanity. You may be getting away with that now. Oh, my goodness. And you're not really getting away with it as much as you see. I've found no studies that say teenagers need le- less sleep. I've found no studies that say certain personalities can completely do wonderful. You're just choosing to do that. And let me say what I think is one of the worst things our culture has introduced as a means to pushing back a bit against what was supposed to be normal and a daily reminder that I am human. He is God and I am not. The energy drink. I know I like coffee, but folks, this is way beyond coffee. You look on the labels of some of the, this is the equivalent of five coffee. Yeah. Monster drink, Red Bull drink. And in 2015, it was a $50 billion industry. You are watching an exhausted America in their cars, back and forth from home to work, exhausted on the ragged edge of exhaustion, either from staying up and watching endless episodes of something or surfing or doing more work and checking emails, but they've drank something so that they can still do it. Humanity, frailty, limitations, and trust in God. These two things are closely related. He goes on to say, whether we fall asleep quickly or not, so here's, here's what I hear sometimes. Well, I'm lying there and I can't go to sleep, so I'm going to get up and do some more work. Bad idea. Just lay there and say, 
Body, I don't, you can keep me up all night, but I'm not moving. I'm not going to do any more work. I'm going to lie here and say, I am not God. I am human. I am limited. I am frail. So feel free to go to sleep at some point because we'll do no more work. We'll do, because you train your body then to get up and do more. You have to say, I'm done. And I'll just say to myself sometimes when I'm lying there, lying here is still more restful than being up and doing and see when you get up and often it has to do with the computer studies have shown that flickering light and all that all that electronics it gets you wide awake if you do get up and i'm not encouraging it go old school so sorry book remember what those were it has pages i'm not talking about your kindle that will wake you up with the electronic side of it and the light book and begin to read and get sleepy and be human and trust God and go to bed. Whether we fall asleep quickly or not, we can welcome sleep for what it is. We can choose to bow out of the action to know that the world will be fine without us for a while. See, you may be up because of work you need to do, but some of you, I think you're up because you think you're gonna miss out. Just what is going on in the world and I've gotta check Facebook again and I've gotta post this and I've gotta see my likes and I've gotta, but it's all fairly insignificant. Sleep would be so much better as far as the impact on your life and being salt and light in the marketplace the next day. We can choose to bow out of the action to know that the world will be fine without us for a while. When we make ourselves most vulnerable, when we exit consciousness and are forced to in the right sense, let go and let God. I'm going to unpack this some more next week as to how this plays into your unhurried time with God. But today, let me point out a second workplace danger. Number two, your flesh can be lulled. Your flesh can be lulled. And I chose that word carefully because it's subtle. It's slow. It's incremental. Your flesh can be lulled into all kinds of sinful temptations in the workplace. And that is a recipe for moral disaster. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has one of my all-time favorite quotes regarding temptation because it's so insightful in relation to what is going on in the midst of a temptation between you and your relationship with God. Because you're a believer. We should be able to resist temptation. We are the ones that say, there is a God. I'm gonna stand before him. I want to please him. Jesus died for me. How do we miss that? How do we still step into temptations? Listen to what he says. Quote, in our members, there's a slumbering inclination towards desire which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge, love of fame, power or greed for money. Joy in God is in course of being extinguished in us. And we seek all our joy in the creature. Oh, listen to what he says. At this moment, at this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused develops the mind, envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. 
Have you not had a good friend or family member, or maybe it's you yourself, that goes down in flames in ways that you would say about them or people would say about you, what? Why would they do that? Were they not thinking? Yes, that's it. They were not. They were not thinking about God at all. No one becomes a card-carrying atheist and says, today, there's no more God. But they make decisions as if there is no God. God has become quite unreal to them. And joy in God is extinguished. And all your joy becomes in this, whether it's ambition. And and I'm going to talk more next week. But folks, joy in God is just a phrase unless you're meeting with God. If you're not meeting with God... And I don't mean in some check the box off kind of way. I mean where you're with him and he's real and you love Jesus and you're worshiping him and delighting in him and knowing him and unloading your burdens with him. And then you go into your day and there's there's a reality that there is a God. Some of you are going day after day after day with nothing more than television episodes and blogs and computer. No wonder there's no reality of God in your life. And the temptation itself seems so much more real and satisfying. Joy in God is is extinguished in us. Satan does not try to fill us with hatred of God. You You would recognize that and push back. Just forgetfulness of God. Oh, in the workplace, more than any other place, your flesh and my flesh is going to be exposed Now, notice how I said that. You said, but Brad, you work at church. You're all singing kumbaya and they love Jesus. No, I'm working with sinners. Bad stuff could happen right here between sinners. Workplace. Why? Because in a typical week, when you play out the hours sometimes, whether you work out there somewhere or whether you work right here, I'm with other people besides my spouse and family more hours than a week sometimes because I'm going to bed now at nine. I just had to say, hello, love you. Then my family, I'm with them more. I'm around them more. Oh, the potential for dangerous temptations is huge as God begins to seem unreal to you. Let me point out what I think is the biggest temptation that has taken more uh, Christians down in flames. Sexual temptation. In the workplace, And here's where I want to park it for a minute. You think about it. As you work together in the workplace, what's going to happen? And there's no sin in this. God made us relational beings. God is a relational being. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He made us relational beings. It's not normal when you don't care about relating to people. If that's you, not normal. It's very normal to connect and relate. So there's no sin in that. So friendships get forged in the marketplace. You do a project together. You're working together. You see each other. Friendships are forged. There's no sin in that. But you need to understand, Christian, all those friendships that get forged in the workplace hold potential. There's always the opportunity that you can step across the line and take that friendship into a much more intimate zone where you should not go. You say, Brad, what do you mean? Let me tell you exactly what I mean. Let me tell you the mistake that I see so many people make that I'd like you not to make, that I'm choosing not to make. Do not complain about your spouse, if you're married, to anyone of the opposite sex in the workplace. You're gonna spend more hours perhaps with your boss, your coworkers, your clients. 
Wonderful. None of them should become your counselor on your marriage. Ever, ever, ever. Here's how Satan loves to do this. You complain about your spouse and what do you know? They don't turn and say, well, I'm sorry for you. I love my spouse. He's a wonderful husband. He's glorious. Hope that works out for you. You know what the high chances are? They're going to say, yeah. And they're going to tell you how bad their spouse is. And you two are going to begin to have this camaraderie of how bad our spouses are. And she's listening to you like your wife doesn't. And he's being kind and not interrupting you like your husband doesn't. And it all starts with counseling each other regarding your marriage. Don't do it. If you're a man, you're part of a church family. Find a godly man here that you can talk to and bear your heart and say, Can you help me? Help me, I'm struggling. If you're a woman... Find a godly woman here and say, can you help me? Do not talk to people of the opposite sex about your marriage struggles ever. Very dangerous place, the workplace, if you're not vigilant and on guard. Against even the smallest indiscretion. You think about Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph and and his brother's you know, sold him into slavery. But did it ever occur to you that that whole scene where... Potiphar's wife seduces him, tries to, to sleep with her. That happened on the job. Workplace. He had no choice. He wasn't just strolling through the marketplace. He didn't meet, meet her on the sport field or in the gym. It's where he had to go to work. He was head manager of Potiphar's household. He's showing up there every day and she's there every day and she wants him to sleep with her. That was a workplace job temptation. And he's single. And he's attractive and handsome. And here, his flesh could have said, oh my goodness, this is not only an opportunity for sexual pleasure with a powerful and beautiful woman, but also could be a means of career advancement because she's the boss's wife and she's hot for me. If I please her and I'm in good with her, she's going to say, he didn't go there. In fact, he did the right thing after day. And here's what you need to recognize. It'll be relentless. You don't reject a temptation. I hope you know temptation doesn't give up after one attempt. It says day after day she said this until finally she literally laid hold of him when there were no other men in the house. And he, not metaphorically, but literally ran, leaving his outer garment in her hand. And she didn't say, oh, well. No, she was furious. Hell hath no fury as a woman scorned. And so she accuses him of raping her. See, here's what we expect as Christians. Oh, I did the right thing. Blessings untold will just pour from the heavens on me. Did he get blessed real good? He got put in prison. You need to recognize the other thing from that story is you do not always get immediately rewarded for doing the right thing. You have the joy of doing the right thing And pleasing God. But you may actually see things get harder because you did it. And you've got to be willing to do that. Not because things got better and you did the right thing. Joseph ended up in prison even though he did the right thing. And see here's what I want to press on you. As a Christian. If you're headed in the workplace and the only commitment that you've made. Maybe you're already thinking Brad. No brainer. I've already made the commitment. I'm not jumping in bed with anybody. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not going to sleep with my boss if I'm single. I'm not going to sleep with another single at work. 
Here's what I want you to hear. If that's the only commitment that you have solidly made, you are a casualty waiting to happen. You say, what? Christians need to have a higher standard than that. Look back in Ephesians chapter five, verse three. Ephesians five, three, I'm gonna read it from the NIV. But among you there must not be even a, say it. Say it again. Not even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. Not even a hint has to be our commitment and our standard if you want to finish well. You see, what most Christians don't realize is that long before you step into gross, heinous, sexual sin, you were already guilty of dozens of little compromises and indiscretions that you thought were no big deal. Look at the additional handout that I gave you. The very first panel is titled, A Chain of Events That Leads to Adultery. If you're single, just change it to a chain of events that leads to sexual immorality and fornication. Because it's true either way. And here's why I love this. Because it always is, look at me, it always is a chain of little links that lead up to big sin. If all you're on guard for is the big sin, the big sin, the big sin, and you're not vigilant about little links along the way, listen, I don't know of any Christian who's ever woken up and said, today, I think I'm gonna commit adultery, wreak havoc on my home, break my spouse's heart, bankrupt all trust, cause my children to question Christianity and shame the name of Jesus Christ because people in my workplace knew I was a Christian. Nobody does that. What they do is they are ignorant of little, little, little indiscretions that in of of themselves might not be sinful. But you need to step way back from Sinful. Look look at what he's talking about. Presence, number one, presence of certain internal and external circumstantial factors. What's he saying? Well, surely you've experienced this. Sometimes you're just with somebody and like, there's something there. There's a little buzz. There's a little bit of chemistry. Is that a sin? Feel free to say no. It just happens. What I do next is critical. I step back. Not literally in that moment. You stay there. I feel your buzz. Don't, don't buzz anymore towards me. Buzz on back. No, no. But I, I'm in my mind thinking, okay, okay. Ooh, ooh. And so I'm in other cities more than once a month at conferences. And, and if there's someone talking, there's just... And then I start to notice out of my peripheral, she's there a lot. Between every break, break every time we take a break after my workshop... Do I, am I saying, she wants to have sex with me? No, I'm not that arrogant. And she might not. But I do know this. There's a room full of hundreds of people, and she's here a lot. And, and it's good questions, it's biblical questions, but I want to be careful. So I'm not going to turn to her. I just keep choosing someone else. Someone else, someone else. And if someone is just too much, you know, laughing and talking and touching on the arms, like... I just want to be vigilant. Sometimes Vicky will literally say to me, and I don't want you to freak out. I've been here 21 years. She's maybe said this three, four times. She'll say, honey, I'm just a little concerned about so-and-so. Want to know who it is? I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> now, when I was more stupid, I used to push back saying, oh, honey, please. Hey, she's my wife. She's not a green-eyed, jealous monster. This doesn't happen all the time. Women have hunches. If she says, would you be careful? Would you not go out of your way to be with her any more than you have to? I listen to her. I say, okay, honey. When, when ladies send me emails, I'm your pastor, so don't hear me saying, ladies, don't email me. But when I get long emails and, and all kinds of questions, sometimes they're sexual questions or struggles they have or things, I copy Vicky on my answers. And if it's very like, oh, wow, that was, I just say, thank you for being so humble and wanting help. My wife would be happy to talk with you. She would meet with you. She would talk with you on the phone. I get out of it fast. I'm not going to continue to be the one that, you say, Brad, what in the world? Brad, nothing. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, you who think you stand, take heed lest you. I don't think there's any pastor that ever thought, I'm going to play fast and loose with my sexuality and serve Jesus at the same time and see if this works. No one intends to go down in flames, but they're going down in flames left and right as pastors and as Christians out in the workplace. I think because too many Christians just say, I don't want to sin in a heinous, gross way, but they haven't thought through just those little steps. If you keep reading that, you'll see. It's like, oh, all of a sudden we just, oh, you're in parking lot B, me too. And you end up having a great conversation on the way in and you just like talking to them. You look forward to seeing them, but you're not going out of your way to do it. It just keeps happening. But the next step is you look for reasons to see them. I know in the building where they work, I'm going to take this folder on around there. Or I know they park in lot B. I'm going to start parking in lot B. Not that we could have sex on the pavement. But you say, I'll probably get to talk to them. And I just like talking to them. And then you start comparing your spouse to them. And then you start thinking about how much better you feel around them than around your spouse. And you see where this is all headed? If you walk it on down to the bottom, then it does lead to inappropriate sexual contact and a whole bunch of lying to cover it up. And no Christian woke up saying, I think I'll wreck my life, destroy all trust, and shame the name of Jesus. But it happens all the time. Let me tell you another area in the workplace that I think has made this so much more difficult. It is those of you who travel for your jobs. Because of this whole, we're trying to get this done with three people instead of seven, what that often means is you got to travel. You're over a region now. You were right here. Now we want you to do North Carolina, South Carolina, Kentucky, and Georgia. You got to fly. You got to travel. You got to drive. You got to stay in hotels. Don't hear me saying it's a sin. Do hear this. I put it to you this way bluntly frequent flyers have frequent temptations. If you don't know that, you better get to know that. Because, listen, the flesh loves anonymity. If you hear that whisper, when you're removed from familiar circumstances and people and places, it is amazing. The flesh will just whisper, nobody knows you here. Nobody back home will even know what you do. Just check it out. Go on down to the hotel bar, have some drinks, find someone to talk to. Just, when you hear that whisper, buckle. Don't. So I gave you on the back panel, on the back panel of this, I gave you a business travel plan. Business travel plan. I'm not going to read through it for you, but if you travel, and I do, sometimes more than once a month now, here's who my heart really goes out to. Think about how some of this works. The airline industry, I arrive in an airport, I'm on the train, 
headed to someone's going to pick me up and take me to the hotel. And I see pilots and flight attendants, six or eight of them, all laughing and rolling their bags together. And they're probably going to share a cab to the same hotel that Delta or American Airlines has booked a block of rooms. And someone's going to say, oh, I know a great restaurant in Chicago. My uncle lives here. Or, oh, I know a great movie that I heard was good. Let's all go. It doesn't sound sinful, right? But you're laughing, men and women hanging out. It may have been who knows when since you and your wife went out on a date or saw a movie. But there you are in Chicago eating at a great restaurant, laughing, going to a movie, maybe having some drinks. Nobody intends. You may have to look really weird and be judged when you say, thank you very much, but I got work to do. And you stay in your room. And my work is to uh, basically stay sexually faithful to my spouse. That's my work. That's my job. That's my job to the glory of God. I'm just not going to make it easy for my flesh. I'm going to do everything I can to make this very, very hard. Is this making sense? I want you to finish well. I want to finish well. Anonymity. The flesh loves. If you are removed from your normal, familiar circumstances on a regular basis, you better have a plan. So here's what I'm asking you. Either adopt this or adapt this, but make a plan. You may not like mine. You may like to revise it. You may want to add something, delete something. But if you travel and you don't have a plan, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable. Third workplace danger I want to touch on. Your lifestyle, number three, can drive you to work more hours just to pay for all the stuff you're piling up. And that's a recipe for financial disaster. Oh, I know when you head into the workplace, right? Everybody's talking about the restaurant they ate at that weekend. Or three times they ate at that weekend. You're pulling into the lot and everyone's pulling in with Range Rovers and beautiful new cars. They're all talking about the cruise they took, the cruise they're going to take, the trip they took, the trips they are taking, Europe. There's just all this sense that everybody is doing this. News alert. Some of them are up to their eyeballs in debt. So your job can be hard, but if you add to that overextending yourself financially so that you have the pressure of finances causing you and your spouse to also fight and feel stressed out, sorry, you can control that. You say, no, I can't. This is what it costs to live. Let me tell you where people blow it. You can choose where you live. You can choose what you drive. You can choose how often you eat out. And you can choose how often you take a trip that costs big bucks. Those are four big areas that I see people just blow it, right? So, so I'm, I'm living in a house. I know you've heard this, but I'm, it's huge. I'm living in a house that was built in 1976 that I paid $137,000 for. Yeah. And so I don't walk into the closet because you can't. It's very short. There are no walk-in closets. There's no sunken garden tub. There's no gorgeous kitchen. But tell you what I do walk into, a paid-for home. And that feels really good. I have no house payment. Why? Because it was so cheap I could pay it off in 22 years. And it feels so good to not have that financial pressure. The home you choose, I could have already sold that and stepped it up and moved out here near the church in some huge home and taken on another $200,000 mortgage, but I I didn't want to do that. I like being debt-free with my home. I want to thank all of you for buying new cars and paying the sticker price. 
so that I can then buy them two or three years later. And, and I buy them almost new with 10, 12, 15,000 miles. And I save eight to $10,000 or more. Thank you. I, I, you don't have to buy a new car. Let someone else be the ridiculous one that pays that price. As soon as you drive it off the lot, just dollars, $8,000 less as soon as you drove it off the lot. And you say, oh, but you have more repairs. Shut up. Not when you have 10, 12,000 miles on it. I have no more repairs than you do. What I drive allows us to have less financial pressure. We buy, oh, here, here's an idea, groceries. Remember that? And we cook food at home. We've got people who eating out is just how they eat all throughout the week. That was supposed to be a treat, not just how you eat. And stop with saying, oh, we eat cheap and we have coupons. No, groceries are cheaper. Does it take longer? Oh, yeah. And then trips. Everybody didn't used to take a fall. The kids are out for fall. We got to go somewhere. We got to go to Gatlinburg and see the Dolly Parton show. And it's going to be about $1,200, 15 Oh, spring break. Got to take a trip. Summer, we're going to take several trips. Don't hear me saying it's a sin to take a trip. But people didn't used to think every time the kids were out of school, you got to take a trip. Trips cost money. But I know everybody's doing it. Four ways you could reduce financial pressure. As you head into the marketplace and your job's already hard. Because here's what I want you to notice about verse 3. Look back at it again. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named. Do you know what just happened there? Fornication is the Greek word porneia. Does that sound familiar? Porneia. Covetousness is the Greek word pleonexia. That means the annexing of more. I just got to have more. Everybody else has more. I got to have more. I got to have a better car bigger house, more eating out, more trips, annexing of more. And God in the same verse puts together that neither one of those things should characterize Christians, not porneia and not pleonexia. We shouldn't be characterized by sexual immorality and we shouldn't be characterized as, oh, I got to have more. I got to have more. I got to have more. And here's the similarity. You say, why would God do that? Porn, right? Or sexual sin You go there for pleasure and you think it'll please you. What happens? It starts to own you and you're a slave. The same is true with stuff, my friends. You go there for pleasure thinking it will please you and it starts to own you and you're a slave, whether it's porneia or pleonexia. Think real hard how many things you want to pile up because every possession has the potential to possess you. There are no free horses. Oh, someone gave us a horse. Oh, run from the horse. Spank its flank and send it to the fields. You got to buy saddles. You got to have hooves. You got to have a stable. You got to move poop. You got to buy straw. You didn't get a free horse. You got a financial nightmare. Unless you have in the budget horse money. You didn't get something free. It really boils down to, you think about it, where we started in Genesis chapter 3. The biggest problem is our sin problem that alienates us from God and other people. And it causes us to be forgetful of God and start to use people created in his image. And when you're living with financial pressures and when you're living unguarded in your sexual life and when you're just 
running at a pace where you're on the ragged edge of exhaustion, oh my goodness. Recipe for spiritual disaster, moral disaster, financial disaster. I want you to finish well. I want you to stay in the marketplace. Don't hear me saying, let's huddle up here where it's safe. You got to go. He said, go. But oh my goodness, I want you to see a verse that I stopped short of reading as we close. Look at verse 18 in Ephesians 5. Verse 18, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with what? Be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on, if you read the rest of his letter, to talk about marriage and home and work. Guess what? God never designed you to be able to do marriage and family and work in your own strength. You can't. You need God. You've got to be filled with the Spirit. You've got to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit, you have to have unhurried time with God, meeting with Him before you head in there. He goes on to tell us what marriage will look like with wives submitting and responding and husbands being servant leaders that lay down their lives. That only happens when you're filled with the Spirit because that is not normal. To be in the workplace and to work as unto the Lord, even if you've got a boss that's just awful, that's never going to happen unless you're filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Believer, your Christianity is supposed to show up in the marketplace. But for that to happen, for you to live radically different regarding materialism and different regarding sexual innuendo and crass conversations and joking... You better be filled with the Spirit. Oh God, thank you for pointing out the dangers and then thank you for giving us everything we need for life and godliness. And the main thing we need at the top of the list is you. You. More of you. And yet you said, if I go away, I'll give the helper. I'll send a helper. Oh God, thank you for the down payment of our marriage with Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit now in us. Resurrected power, Spirit of Christ living in us. Help us to finish well and to live radically different by the power of the living God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.